Have you ever said something, but a second after you say it, you think, oh no. Did you do that this morning, maybe? Because the service is later, at one thirty. there's a lot more time for you to say something that you regret. <laughs> I mean, we've all done it, right? Uh, you say something, you wish you could eat the words, they're, they're escaping your lips, and you're like, oh, this is not good. Have you ever been to, uh, at work and you had a conversation in a meeting with a colleague, a department, uh, and you were oblivious to the impact of something that you said that later sort of created this domino effect, and then later you're having meetings upon meetings to sort of sort that thing out? Have you ever um, said something to a friend or a family member uh, that was ill-advised and it sort of had this butterfly effect, and then a couple days later or weeks later or the next family event, it's kind of like it had this... Now you're dealing with sort of a relational hurricane because this thing is kind of expanded. You know, we all have times in our life where we feel like we should be buying our toothpaste in the foot aisle, um, the orthopedic toothpaste uh, you know, brand, if there were such a thing. We all have those feelings. If you're anything like me, you could check the box on absolutely everything that I just said. We've been studying the book of James. Today we come to chapter 3. It's all about the way in which we speak. And uh, just briefly... Uh, for the clarity and benefit of those of you who are new to the scriptures and new to exploring Christian faith, uh, the book of James is really not dealing with the basis on which we're saved. The basis on which we're saved is Christ alone and him crucified. We're saved by faith alone. James knows this, agrees with this, and so he's being very provocative with his church because he wants to know where the evidence is that you're saved. He wants to uh, push this envelope to essentially... Uh, explore, uh, you, you know, what does this life of love actually look like? Uh, he knows, and we know, that the way that we speak, our loving speech, is not what saves us. It doesn't get us into God's good graces, and it's not keeping us in God's good graces. Everybody say, amen, thank you, Jesus. Okay, it's not keeping us there, but what James is pushing at is he's saying, you know, it should, though, be the evidence that, that by Christ alone we are in God's good graces. So we come to chapter 3, and we're instructed to pay close attention uh, to how a Christian who claims to be um, in God's grace has been saved by that grace, because essentially the way that we speak reveals what we believe. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. They're able to keep their whole body in check. And when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large, driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants the ship to go. And likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed. And they have been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. 
With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praises and curses. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or can a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt water be produced from a fresh spring. Now who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds, done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. This sort of wisdom does not come from heaven. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is God's word. Now as we unpack this text this morning, I'm going to focus you on three things, hopefully serve you as some guideposts so that when you're further meditating on this text and later readings that you do, you can explore it more deeply. But the three things we're going to look at today are this. Living faith is demonstrated by the way we speak because the way we speak reveals what we believe. The second thing is an out-of-control tongue is a symptom of an out-of-control heart. And lastly, a person of wisdom is a person of worship who's speaking from an ever-renewed heart. So firstly, let's look at how living faith is demonstrated in the way that we speak because what we say reveals what we believe. As I, as I reiterated before, James is not suggesting that, you know, if you have a problem with good works or have a problem with loving speech, then ramp up your good works, ramp up your loving speech, and you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. But what he's pressing at here, you start in verse 1, he says, don't let any of you, uh, many of you become teachers because there's stricter judgment. And immediately, I didn't like that. So I was like, I got to read this in Greek because this is terrifying because I am a teacher. And so I read it in the Greek and guess what I found? That's exactly what it means. Because that's how, the Greek, that's how the Greek and Hebrew translations work. You don't need to understand the original languages to know the Bible. You can understand it quite plainly in English alone. The original languages just give us more color so that we can look more deeply at it. What James says is, many of you shouldn't be running off to become teachers, which was a problem in the early church. Historians teach us that there was sort of the idea of teaching was, was not viewed as like a, a position of service, but a position of, you know, sort of power and grandiose, and it was a big deal. And so the motive was all wrong. And so James is kind of nipping this in the bud. And he goes, imagine how confusing it would be for the church if those who are teaching uh, about the grace of Christ had no regard for desiring personally to imitate Christ. Now, if you follow me for any length of time, I'm going to show you at some point a deeply disgusting character flaw that is nothing like Jesus. And in that moment, you're going to go, oh my goodness, my pastor in this moment is nothing like Jesus. Right? Right? You're going to find that because I don't have a spiritual advantage. I'm, you and I are the same. But it would, it would confuse the church if I didn't seem to care that I didn't resemble Jesus. It would be terrible and detrimental for this church if I sort of had no regard for whether or not the way that I spoke somewhat resembled Jesus. Or if I was somehow bothered by this disconnect. And the reason James bring it up is because there is a huge disconnect in the church. You know, my son Isaiah, many of you know he's an animator, and sometimes when you're animating things, you've got to zoom way in and work with great detail 
because you're trying to make something move. But, you know, at some point, you've got to zoom back out. And if you don't, if you don't zoom back out, you're going to lose where this whole thing is supposed to be moving. So we have to zoom back out and go, what is the whole letter of James about? And really what it's about is there's this massive disconnect between saying that you love Jesus and the life that you're living. And that's going to be a problem. We all fail. We're all, we all have those moments. We're all sinners. We all sin. But there should be some sort of a desire for that to be lessened in our lives. And so he says, let not many of you become teachers. Because obviously there's this disconnect and this is, this is a problem. He says, we all stumble in many things. The text says we because James is including himself in the big mess. And preachers, we should be included in the group of those who are struggling with the sin. And the, and the word that he uses is stumble. And in the English language, if you stumble... That's not a fatal, deathly fall, is it? It means you got tripped up. And in the Greek, it's, this, it's essentially what he's conveying is this isn't like final failure, the stumbling. It's this momentary lapse of being tripped up. And what James want to know, what wants to know is he's not giving anybody a free pass on their stumbling. He says, we all stumble. But the question is, how do we relate to it when we stumble? Does this bother us or are we aggrieved by it? Is there a desire for there to be less stumbling in our life? Of course, the context for his whole letter is faith that's either alive or dead. And so when we zoom out and look at this, we've got to ask ourselves the question, okay, well, if our faith is a living faith, then we should be bothered when we stumble. And not only are we bothered by our stumbling, but we really would want our life to be marked as the years tick on with less and less stumbling. James is just saying this is a logical conclusion. There should be less stumbling. But if the, if the faith is dead, which is his argument in the first three chapters of his book, is your faith alive or dead? If the faith is dead, um, you're not bothered by the stumbling. In fact, you'll probably just double down and defend yourself when you're stumbling or deny that the way that you're talking even is stumbling. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like every time you're trying to have a dialogue with someone, there's a masterful spin on how they're never wrong. That's frustrating, is it not? And if we're honest, we can think back at times in our lives where we were the ones putting the masterful spin on this thing so that we could convey to our friend, our spouse, our colleague that we were never wrong. So James is going, okay. Verse 2, if anyone doesn't stumble at all in the way that they speak, then that's a perfect person, spiritually mature, you know, totally complete. And of course, we all stumble in word, right? We stumble in the way we talk about ourselves. We stumble in the way that we talk about others. And if you think about it, how is it that I stumble in the way that I talk about myself? Well, you can talk about yourself in a way that is never going to get any amens from heaven. You can talk about yourself like you're a worm and you're terrible and you're worthless and you're not worth anything and everybody's better than you. And heaven is not amening that kind of way of talking about yourself. Or you can flip from that inferiority sort of a complex to superiority and can kind of look around the church and conclude that nobody in here is really worth that much of your time. And the way we can talk about others can essentially be problematic in both ways. We do this all the time. But the immediate context for this stumbling, again, if you zoom back out, is they have a problem in the church with the way that they talk about people of different ethnicity, and they have a problem in the church with the way they talk about the poor. And what James is pressing here is, because that's the immediate context. Somebody walks into Redeemer, they're a different ethnicity than you. What's coming out of your heart is going to manifest with your words and what's coming out of your mouth. Somebody walks in a Redeemer and they sit down next to you, you know, and they're struggling with homelessness at the moment or they just come from a completely different sort of economic uh, 
a background that what you are accustomed to, one way or the other. Right? They come in and they're incredibly, incredibly wealthy and they sit next to you and you're immediately like, Pfft. the idolatry in their life is probably disgusting. Yeah, I mean, we can do this. And so that's what James is pressing at. Is he saying what, the, what this stumbling reveals is what we believe. And if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, the one who became poor for our sakes and, our, and his cross holds up a mirror to our poverty, then we will actually relate to the poor and we will relate to all those of ethnicities that are beyond our own with a great degree of humility and love and grace because that's the work that the gospel is doing even in us. And so then he moves on and uh, he gives us a couple examples. He gives an example of a horse with a bit in its mouth. He gives an example of a ship with a rudder. And then he gives an example of a forest fire that was set ablaze by a spark. And this image of a small spark setting ablaze a forest fire, it's a picture of a spark as a thing that happens in a moment. You know, a spark is there and it's gone. A lot of times, like the words that we say that, from our view, it was just kind of there and it was gone. I'm just joking. I didn't mean it. Relax. It was just a spark. But man, that thing set off a relational forest fire. The forest fire doesn't, isn't put out in one minute. A forest fire burns for a long time. This is an image of a quick word that has a lasting impact. And so what James is getting at is, as believers, those saved by scandalous grace, though we don't deserve it, now this should matter to us. Because in this particular context, the, 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 the lasting impact is negative. It's a fire that's, you know, something's being set ablaze, it's being burnt down. But because James is wisdom literature in the New Testament, let's press that and think about how the opposite is also true. That in the same way that you could speak a hurtful, unloving, uncaring, casual word that sort of emotionally hurts somebody and it could bother them for months or years, you can also say something that is timely and wise and loving and caring and sacrificial that also has a long-lasting impact on somebody's life for months and years. Some of you can think back to conversations that were like TSN turning points for you. Man, I was headed this way and this person had a conversation with me and it just really had a beautiful impact in my life. James is pressing this. Of course, this example here is negative. You get to the picture of the horses with the bits and the ships and the rudders. And what's he provoking us to think about? Well... If you have a horse that's very difficult to control, and listen to me, because I know a lot about horses. No, I'm just kidding. I can't tell if you're laughing because you're wearing masks. It's kind of like, it's like preaching to a room of ninjas. It's, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I absolutely love it. I mean, all, every other week I'm like a podcaster. So this is like a glory to be with you in your presence. You just have to, thank you, Andrew, for laughing through the mask. I appreciate that. We have, everybody has to be eight feet from Andrew because he laughs so hard. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But the, the, the horse with the bit, if you, have an, if you have an unruly horse, you can't solve the problem by just tying it up and leaving it in the barn. There, problem solved. If you have a ship that's difficult to, to control, you don't solve the problem by just docking it and saying, there, problem solved. It would really solve the problem. Any more than saying, oh, well, you know, I have a difficulty, uh, you know, sort of, controlling my mouth so the solution for James chapter 3 is for me to just keep quiet I just keep all my judgmental thoughts inside my head we haven't really solved the problem now if we keep our mouths shut that benefits our neighbors so that's good 
Um, it doesn't wreak havoc in anybody's life, so that's also good. But we really haven't dealt with the problem because what James is provoking here is what's holding the reins exactly? Who's steering the ship exactly? If you can, by holding the reins, control the animal and by holding the wheel, control the ship and control the rudder, is, is there any force in your life that you're willing to give the reins to? So again, if we zoom back out, we think about whether our faith is dead or alive, and we're provoked, provoked to consider this, okay, if my faith is dead, that I don't want anybody reigning in my speech, and I certainly don't want a, a divine standard that's governing my speech. And if my faith is dead, then I should be able to say whatever I want, because that's just me speaking my truth. It's out of control. But if my faith is alive, then I actually want the hand of God on the reins. I actually want the wisdom of God's word holding the wheel. I actually would desire that I don't just speak every thought that comes into my head and my heart and just say, well, because I seem to feel it or think it or this comes naturally to me, therefore it's true. Uh, But that the faith is alive says, no, something's got to be holding those reins. And as the text moves on, we realize it can't be me that's holding those reins. It can't be my own divine standards of, or, of truth or ethics. And it can't be my own power that's holding the reins. I, I can't do it. What James is doing here is he's channeling the prophets. He's echoing the wisdom literature from Proverbs. You find it chapters 12 through you know, 16 about the, the tongue. He's channeling the Proverbs. And he's, he's making use of Jesus' teaching where Jesus himself said that uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which leads to the second point, which is this. An out-of-control tongue is a symptom of the out-of-control heart. This is where this sort of thing leads. That's why James says, well, nobody can actually tame their tongue. Why would he say that? Is, is he just being a, a downer? Is he just expecting the church to just be miserably depressed? No, he's, he's wanting us to take some honest inventory. Uh, but he's also pointing us to something. And it's our need for God's saving grace. The grace that not only saves also teaches and renews. Titus teaches that. Okay? So what James is pointing at is he says, in the same way that you can't save yourself from quicksand by pulling yourself out by your own hair, you cannot tame your own tongue. You need the divine grace of God continually sort of turning to him in the same way that we can't generate our own salvation, uh, renew our own hearts. Um, we need the goodness of God in our lives doing this work. And if it's out of control, if our tongues are out of control, it's a symptom that our hearts are out of control. And so that's why he goes on to say, you know, with it we bless God and we curse men. And, you know, we do that. And, and James puts himself in the good company by using the word we. And you remember the apostles even struggled with this, so we're in good company. Right? Peter, Peter declared Jesus was Lord. And then he cussed out a little girl at a campfire. Jesus is Lord. And then the Passion Week, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Beep. No, I wasn't. You beep, beep, beep. I'm never with him. Same mouth, does both things. John, the beloved disciple, you know John who writes about himself like the one that Jesus loved? John said, you know, little children, you know, let us love one another. And John also said, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? That's a bit racist. He said both of those things. So 
What's the problem then? If you and I fail and the apostles fail, what's James getting at here? He's, what he's getting at is there's, in our failure, in our stumbling, there's got to be an incredible remorse. When you look at Peter and John and James and you and I, when our faith is alive, there is repentance. You know, there is a desire for renewal. And uh, we don't just sort of uh, say, well, you, you know, this doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. And so thank God for grace. I can just do whatever I want. It's not relevant. That's not the tone of the book of James. What he's getting at when he starts talking about water, the salt water and the fresh water flowing from the same stream, what James is trying to say is, if none of this bothers you, uh, it's, it's impossible that you're saved. You're not saved by your loving works and you're not saved by your loving speech. That doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. What he's saying is, if nothing bothers you, then you've got, something has the reins, but it's not Jesus. And so, there's only one answer, which of course is for all of us to turn uh, to Jesus. If our, if, our, uh, if our faith is alive, this is, what we're gonna, this is precisely what we're going to want. This is precisely going to be our, our uh, reaction, which leads to the final thing, is that a person of wisdom is a person of worship. And this person of wisdom, which is where his text ends with wisdom, you notice that? He starts talking about speech, and then it moves into wisdom. There's this flow from the way you talk to the way you act. He's pointing at the preacher. And he's going, preacher, um, there shouldn't be a disconnect between what you say and how you live. He's pointing at the preacher and all of us by extension. This flow to the renewed heart. When you look at verse 13, he says, who's wise and understanding among you, that wisdom. He's expecting it to be on the ground. He's expecting it to matter in a real practical way. You know, during the Reformation, uh, when they were trying to recover the goodness of God's grace at a time when there was a huge struggle with works. Uh, you know, Luther had a, a, a saying, and he said, you know, it's possible for Christians to be like drunks on horseback. You know, you spend enough time being hammered by legalism that your response to the legalism, legalism, by the way, being defined as, you know, I can earn my way to heaven by living a good life. The response to legalism is to get on the horse and then like a drunk, you fall into the other ditch of lawlessness. Which is like, well, it doesn't seem to really matter how I live. Because Christ, you know, hey, the preacher gets up there. I listen to Paul preach 220 sermons since 2015. And he keeps on saying that it's Christ alone. So I guess it doesn't really matter. What Luther was saying was, no, oh my goodness, it matters. What James is saying here is, now hang on a second. Um, the problem with James' church that he's getting at is, guys, uh, this disconnect is going to be really unhelpful for the church. It's going to be really, really unhelpful, not just for the church community, but the greater community. So he goes and he talks about motive. And the text closes by essentially talking about, you know, there's the wisdom that's from heaven and there's the wisdom from, that's from the earth. And then he uses provocative language. And he says that, and you look in verse uh, 15, well, four, 14 through uh, 16, and he says, you know, the earthly wisdom, it's, you know, earthly, sensual, demonic. What does he mean by that? means we can relate to things in an earthly way. You know, this life is all there is. A sensual way. I'm just, kind of like, I'm, I'm just kind of like an animal that's being led around by my impulses, led around by my appetite. Uh, and then he, and he goes on to say it's demonic. What does it mean to possibly act in a way that's demonic? This sort of indifference to God. There's no worship to God. The refusal to acknowledge God. And so James kind of describes the runaway tongue that way. But then he moves on to talk about the wisdom that uh, we're supposed to sort of mark our lives. And you discover it's pure. And that's speaking of motive, of course. Uh, this desire to not push ourselves forward, the, the, the self-serving, but 
the service of others. It's peaceable and it's gentle and uses the sort of, the sort of language. And so if, what do we conclude as I close our, our time here this morning? That if, I, if I look at my life and I do some self-examination and I look in the mirror, and I conclude that there's not a lot of love and self-sacrifice you know, in, in my, my life to be found, or if I conclude that I don't really speak with love and grace and patience, it doesn't really describe me, uh, I don't really have a good works problem. I don't really ultimately have an unloving speech problem. I have a worship problem. Now, I know most, if not all of you in here, and I know all of you who are members, and so what, how do we think about this when we read it and we go, I know I'm saved, but this is a massive struggle. And I conclude with this, and I want to encourage you that that's James' point. That this, there should be a massive struggle. That the struggle is the evidence that this is not who I want to be and how I want to live. That the instruction, of, the instruction he's giving of wisdom here, this is a clear instruction for my life, a clear instruction for your life. But thank God, it's not just an instruction for our life. It's actually a description of what God will do by his spirit that you and I can't do as we just continually turn to him in a repentance and in a trust and in a dependency. That ultimately, it's a worship problem. And so I turn to him and I, in, in, a, in a repentance and in a trust and by his great grace, um, he is there for us and he strengthens us in the struggle. We become these people of wisdom, of course, by first being people of worship. I have good news. And I close with the good news as we prepare to celebrate at the Lord's table. And it's that Jesus Christ, he walked in this perfect wisdom for you. He spoke with perfect wisdom and love and boldness against sin. And yet with love in his eyes while he did it. He did that for you. Jesus spoke and acted with a generous justice and scandalous levels of mercy with a perfect clarity on what was right and good and true, and he did it all for you. Where you and I fail, Jesus Christ succeeded because he, by nature, was righteous. And he went to the cross for your sin, and though Christ is by nature righteous, you and I are now declared righteous by grace. And that declaration of being righteous by grace has implications. And it is, as I said earlier, not that you and I can pull ourselves out of the quicksand of our runaway tongues by the strength of our, pull ourselves out by our own hair, but by a dependency of turning on God and saying, Lord, I'm seeing some evidence in my life. I got a worship problem. I'm seeing right now, over the, the way that I am really struggling in this situation, something else has the reins. And it's not you. Maybe it's my self-preservation. Maybe it's my pride. It could be a thousand things. But I can look now and see that I need to hand the reins back to you. I need you on the rudder of my life. So that by the power of your spirit, you would continue the beautiful work that you've done in me. And Christ went to the cross for you and I. And he did what we could not do. On that third day, as he rose again, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is our certain hope that death is not final. But as he rose bodily, you and I will be raised as he was. And this gives us the hope that in the end, this world that we live in, that is plagued by sadness and injustice because our sinful thoughts 
manifested into sinful words and graduated and had a graduation ceremony and manifested into sinful actions, giving us the world that we now live in that is beautiful and broken. The hope of the gospel and the resurrection is that all things will be restored. That Christ the King will come and do what no political system or church or organization is going to be able to do. And between now and then, you and I are not passive, but we are quite active. Here in this church community and out in the greater Kitchener-Waterloo community. To love our neighbors. To be ministers of grace. To, to be those who speak with words of healing, of wisdom, of care, patience. That between now and then, as we wait for God to do what only God can do, that we live in this way. Let's pray.